0: Greetings everyone. We'll begin with a word of prayer as we always do. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this evening for the book of Ephesians that you have given us. A book that reminds us of the great wealth that we have in Jesus Christ. So in a world and in a country where we find ourselves increasingly alienated from many people who despise us and oppose us and want to uh, frankly do away with us we ask that you would help us to appreciate the wealth the riches that we do have in Jesus Christ as we are reminded in this book we also thank you for the practical instructions that it gives us about how to conduct ourselves in community and how to conduct our family relationships. We thank you for these instructions, instructions that are just as relevant and just as practical today as they were in the first century. Thank you for that. We ask that you would help us to appreciate both this this, uh, teaching about the wealth that we have in Jesus Christ, and also the instructions that he has given us. So we ask that you will be with us in our study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight we'll be looking at Ephesians. Jesus Christ, our all in Looking at the flight characteristics, facts, landmarks, itinerary, gospel, history, and travel dates. First of all, the facts. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Ephesians is one of the four aptly named prison letters Paul wrote while imprisoned in Rome for preaching Christ. So these four books are known as prison letters, prison epistles, because Paul wrote them while he was in prison. Paul was first imprisoned in Rome between AD 60 and 61. This particular letter was delivered to the Ephesian church by a man named Tychicus, a companion with Paul on his missionary journeys. And we will see next week that Tychicus also delivered the epistle to the Colossians. that Ephesians is an authentic Pauline letter is the traditional view. But in modern times, this has been widely denied. The view that Paul wrote it is supported by the following arguments. So, uh, uh, Ephesians is one of those Pauline epistles that modern scholars, the real ones, uh, deny that, that Paul actually wrote it. Okay. They would say that someone else wrote it, just using under the name of Paul. But the view that Paul wrote it is supported by the following arguments. First of all, the internal evidence. The internal evidence that Paul wrote this book is very strong. There is the explicit claim in two places in the book that Paul is the author. The theology of the book is Pauline, stressing the exalted Christ, unity in the church, and the grace of God. The vocabulary is Pauline, with minor deviations fitting the theme of the book. The liberal scholars, of course, always uh, make much of the fact that there there can be differences in in the vocabulary that's used in a book, but that is simply due to the fact that the books serve different purposes. And so Paul is going to use, of course, a slightly different vocabulary depending on the purpose of his writing. In fact, the style is more Pauline than any imitators could have been. The use of a pseudonym was not practiced by early Christians. Christians in the first century did not write books claiming to be someone that they were not. Ephesians also uh, has close similarities to Colossians, another one of the prison epistles, which also has strong evidence for Pauline authorship external evidence, the evidence from other sources, also supports Paul's authorship. The earliest manuscripts of the book all bear Paul's name, indicating that it was accepted into the canon of scripture as a work of Paul. The early fathers support Paul's authorship. Citations from this book with Paul's name on it are found in both Ignatius and Polycarp, among the earliest fathers, and all the other main fathers from Irenaeus to Augustine after them. There are some different views on when and where uh, Ephesians was written. I mentioned the the most common belief, I think, is that it was written while Paul is imprisoned in Rome. But there are some other views, and I'll just briefly go through those other views. There are three views as to the place and time of writing of Ephesians during the Caesarea incarceration, during the Ephesian Ephesian imprisonment, or while Paul was at Rome. First of all, the Caesarea incarceration. Remember that Paul was uh, taken into custody in, in Jerusalem and then he was moved to Caesarea. And so some would believe that it was during this time of incarceration that Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians. This view has several difficulties. Paul was at liberty to preach during his later Roman imprisonment, but there is no such indication of this in Caesarea. So he had enough liberty, enough freedom to do writing when he was imprisoned in Rome, but not in Caesarea as far as we know. If it was Caesarea, he would have been likely to seek contact with some of the churches there, but he did not. There was no promise of release in Caesarea as there was in Rome. So he was looking forward to the likelihood that he would be released from prison and that, that wasn't the case in Caesarea, but it was in Rome. The slave Onesimus would not have had access to Paul in Caesarea, which was possible in the more informal setting of Rome. So that's the Caesarea incarceration The Ephesian imprisonment, the first Corinthians 1532 written when Paul was in Ephesus. Paul speaks of fighting wild beasts there. Uh, second Corinthians 1 8 through 10 speaks of a sentence of death. Uh, second Corinthians eleven twenty-three refers to being often in prison. So some scholars see a, an Ephesian imprisonment, but there are problems, of course, with that idea. There is no statement that specifically links Paul to in, to prison in Ephesus. There isn't any indication in, in scripture, in the book of Acts, or uh, in any of these prison epistles that, that he was imprisoned in Ephesus. His close companion, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, said nothing about imprisonment in Ephesus wild beast is a figurative is figurative of a spiritual struggle so i've given you acts uh, chapter 20 verse 29 in that verse paul refers to his opponents to the false teachers as being ravenous wolves so the the term wild beast isn't necessarily talking about animals i think it's, it's symbolic of a of a spiritual struggle. Even if it could be established that Paul was in prison in Ephesus, there is no evidence he wrote Ephesians there. The reference to Tring suggests Rome as the place of origin. So the, the third view, which I think is the most likely one, is that when Paul was imprisoned prison at Rome, Paul's writing the letter to the Ephesians from Rome fits the situation better than the other possibilities because he speaks of a palace guard. He refers to Caesar's household. He has freedom to preach there. The conditions of disunity in the church that this period. Very- the ecclesiological emphasis fits with Colossians, which was written at the same time. The prison epistles don't feature as prominently Paul's earlier salvation emphasis in Galatians and Romans. That's not what he's dealing with in these prison epistles. Since the same general materials in both Ephesians and Colossians Both books were undoubtedly written at this time. Indeed, the same person, I mentioned this before, Tychicus carried both Colossians and Ephesians to their destinations. And the same companions, Tychicus and Onesimus, are in Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So Philemon was probably written at this same time. Many scholars believe this imprisonment is to be distinguished from Paul's later. Or second imprisonment at Rome since he had the hope of release here but later he looked forward only to martyrdom. So the first time he was imprisoned in Rome he was looking forward to eventually being released but his second imprisonment that was now no longer a possibility He was looking for looking forward to martyrdom. Landmarks second only to the book of book of Romans. Ephesians is perhaps the most thoughtfully written work of Christian theology in the New Testament. It addresses a group of believers who were ignorant of their wealth in Jesus Christ and were living as spiritually impoverished beggars. Paul wrote to motivate them to draw upon that wealth in their daily living, explaining their identity in Jesus Christ, the awe-inspiring gifts they had through him. Paul also spoke of God's indestructible purposes. Jesus as the center of the universe and the focus of history, the living church, the new family of God, and Christian conduct. One of the letter's major themes is how to build up the spiritual body of Christ. Paul spoke of the body as a bride, a temple, and a soldier. These images point to the importance of unity within the church and how the whole body must work together to achieve a common goal. Each member of the body must help not hinder God's work. From a practical standpoint, this means eliminating backbiting, gossip, unnecessarily negative criticism, envy, anger, and bitterness, as these things hurt the church. Paul explained how God, through the church, is building up a family, a new society with new standards, values, and relationships. As members of that family, we must go on beyond merely reading or hearing God's word and put it into action. Ephesians has been called both the crown jewel and the Grand Canyon of the New Testament for its depiction of the depth and breadth of God's rich plan of love, mercy, and salvation. the itinerary. First, the believer's wealth in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Then we read, secondly, about the believer's walk in 4.1 through 6.9. And then we read about the believer's warfare in 6.10 through 24. This is where we read about the armor of God. Gospel. The book of Ephesians focuses on how God is building a a, a spiritual family and a new society based on the truth of the gospel. And this this society includes Jews as well as Gentiles. Paul summarized the basis for this new family early on in his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Christ. In that verse, we see the wealth of the inheritance in Jesus, in whom we have everything we'll ever need, because of the salvation Christ purchased for us on the cross, and the wonder of what it means to be adopted by God. Throughout the rest of his letter, Paul expounded on that theme, preaching what he called the unsearchable riches of Christ, Though these unsearchable riches are something you have to take on faith, Paul made it clear that he will come into the family of God according to the eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. The wonder and wealth of faith in Christ includes these simple but mind-blowing facts. God chose you, adopted you, and redeemed you. Because he picked you and then he placed you in his new community, you have eternal life to look forward to, as well as abundant spiritual life available to you right now. History. The city of Ephesus was a great Roman commercial port along the coast of the Aegean Sea located in what is now the country of Turkey. Ephesus boasted theaters, a library, a school of philosophy, and the temple of Artemis uh, or Diana, depending on whether you want to use the the Greek or the, the Roman name. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Paul visited Ephesus during his second missionary journey and stayed for almost three years. And then his protégé, Timothy, stayed for another year and a half. Jesus wrote a little postcard to the Ephesian church through the Apostle John in Revelation, stating that though they had tested false apostles and persevered, they had left their first love. By the time Christianity had become the region's dominant religion, Ephesus had lost most of its power and influence in the Roman Empire. Here's a map of the Ephesus region. Down in the lower right-hand corner, you see the, the square showing us where we are on the, the coast of Turkey there. And there's Ephesus on the, on the coast. And of course, if you recall from the book of Revelation, the seven churches, those seven churches in Revelation were on a mail route. Kind of like a uh, an upside down U. So if you start where Ephesus is there in the re, the red pin, and you go north from there, you, you see Smyrna, and then further north, up, clear up in the uh, upper left hand corner, you see Pergamum, and then you turn around and start south again, Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. So those those seven churches were on our on a middle route there in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And there's a close up of the Sea of on the coast there. And you can see why it was an important port. There's a diagram of some of the structures that were located in Ephesus And as you would suspect in a a Roman city, there's all of the things that you would find. Uh, The stadium there in the upper right corner, and the theater kind of in the middle of the picture. And then, of course, always the many, many pagan temples located in the Roman city. Travel things. Members of the body of Christ are wealthy for three reasons. God's fatherhood, God's great forgiveness, and our new spiritual family. The believers with whom we share our lives. It can sometimes be challenging to work with other Christians, but what an amazing comfort and resource God has given us in each other. Through Christ, we are able to love, pray for, encourage, commiserate with, and hold each other accountable. Jesus is our foundation, strength, and unity. Walking with Christ means leaving your old life behind. More than just the, leave, the old crowd you used to run with, you must start at the root of the problem and transform the way you think about the world in general. For you were once darkness. Ephesians 5.8 says, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as the children of light. Submission is the oil that makes the gears of relationships, especially family relationships, run smoothly. In Ephesians 5, Paul laid out the hierarchy of a godly marriage. The wife submits to her husband, and a husband sacrifices his life for his wife. The key to this marriage relationship, however, is found in both parties submitting to one another in the fear of God. And that's the key to any Christian relationship. To love like Jesus, you need to voluntarily put other people first. Christianity is a battleground, not a playground. Regardless of your political or philosophical thoughts about war, you cannot be a spiritual pacifist or you will fall. You need to realize that when you became a believer, you defected from the kingdom of darkness and made the devil your enemy. The good news is that God himself has provided you spiritual weapons to use against that enemy. Now we'll look at a few contrasts with other portions of scripture. First of all, in contrast with Colossians, which we'll be looking at next week. Colossians is uh, more polemical. In other words, it's arguing for one position and against the opposite position. Whereas Ephesians is more ironic. In other words, it's promoting peace and harmony. In Colossians, we read about Christ over the cosmos but in Ephesians, we read about Christ over the church. Colossians, uh, we read about heresy. It's emphasis is on the head of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, it's about unity and the emphasis that's on the body of Christ. Contrasting Ephesians with the Gospels. The Gospels, of course, emphasize the physical body of Christ. It's humiliation. Ephesians concentrates on the mystical body of Christ, in other words, the church. It emphasizes his glorification. In contrast with Corinthians. Corinthians, the emphasis is on the local church, the visible church. Whereas in Ephesians, the emphasis is on the universal church, the invisible church. So let's take a uh, look quickly at uh, some of the differences between the universal church and the local church. Universal church, of course, there's only one universal church, but there are many local churches, of course. The universal church is a spiritual organism. The local church is an organization. It has to be a, a, an organization for administrative purposes. There has to be a structure. Uh, many people today, especially young people, will say, "Well, I, I don't, I don't like uh, organized religion." And my comeback to that is always, "Oh, so you like disorganized religion?" Well, the uh, Universal Church uh, only saved members are in the Universal Church because, of course, Christ knows who His people are. He knows those who are truly saved. In the local church, because we do not have perfect knowledge, um, there are bound to be some members of the local church uh, who are not saved, who are not Christians. But we can't; we have no way of knowing that at the time. So we have to take them at their word and, and uh, assume that they are Christians until they prove otherwise. The universal church, uh, both the Dead and the living members, Christians, are part of the universal church. Of course, in the local church, we only consider the living members to be uh, members of the church because obviously, once people are deceased, once they pass away, they aren't able to participate in the activities of the local church. With the, universe, the universal church, you're looking at the whole body of Christ. And within the local church, we're only looking at parts of the body of Christ. Some more distinctions. for uh, the universal church, Christ is the visible head in heaven. And the local church, Christ is the invisible head on earth. We, we say that Christ is the head of the church, even though we can't see him uh, in our church. But we believe that he is the head and that we are under him. In the universal church, there are no elders or deacons over the universal church, but at the local level, at the local church, we have elders and deacons to administrate the affairs of the local church. In the, local, in the universal church, there are no ordinances because there are no ordinances that are handed down from the above, but at the local church, we have two ordinances. We have baptism and we have the Lord's supper when they are administered in the local church. So, for example, with with, uh, the Lord's Supper, in some local churches, uh, the congregants go forward to receive the communion elements. Whereas in other churches, the congregants remain in their seats and the elements are brought to them. We are somewhat unusual in Gospel of Grace, because we've done it both ways. But anyway, there's no, there's no uh, universal church that tells you how and when to do communion. I mean, some churches do it on the first Sunday of the month, some churches do it on the last Sunday of the month. That is something that is done administratively at the local church level. It's not handed down from the universal church. Universal church, of course, has no denominations. They don't, there are no distinctions that are recognized between true Christians. But at the local church level, there are many denominations and I generally don't think that uh, denominations are necessarily a good thing. But uh, we have to recognize that there are different denominational distinctives In local churches finally the universal church is indestructible no power on earth is able to do away satan is not able to do away with the universal church but of course at the local church level a particular local church may be destroyed may be disrupted and of course i think that has happened many times of course in uh, such places as as North Korea, where it may seem that the tyrants are prevailing uh, over the local church, but they are not able to destroy Christ's universal church. I found this kind of interesting about local Ephesians, the four bodily positions of the believer. First of all, seated in Christ chapters one and two, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Kneeling before Christ, chapter three. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Walking for Christ, chapters four and five. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And finally, standing for Christ chapter six. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So I thought that was kind of interesting how the book of Ephesians is is, uh, organized around those different bodily positions of the believer. To whom was the book of Ephesians written? Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus in Asia Minor and probably to the surrounding area as well. Some say its original destiny was only the church of Ephesus because of the statement in Ephesus. Others say it was a circular letter for churches in Asia Minor because the phrase in Ephesus is not in some early manuscripts and there are no personal references to the church all served for three years. So even though we find that that the epistle was directed to the church at Ephesus, it was probably also a circular letter which was going to other churches in Asia Minor because we don't find those personal references. Premises of Ephesians, several reasons for the writing of this epistle can be discerned from the text Paul wanted to inform believers of their exalted position of blessings in Christ. He wished to urge them to maintain unity in Christ. He hoped to encourage believers in the love of Christ. The verb agapo is used nine times in the book out of 23 times in the New Testament. Paul desired to encourage believers to stand for Christ. He wanted to set forth the divine purposes in Christ from the mystery involving Christ. The theme of Ephesians is exaltation in Christ. Something is a little different about the epistle to the Ephesians. Unlike most of Paul's letters, Ephesians seems not to have been written in response to a particular circumstance or controversy. That was often the case with Paul's writings to the churches. He wrote to deal with a particular situation. That doesn't seem to be the case here uh, in Ephesians. And, of course, we would expect that since it was a A circular letter not just going to the Ephesians, but also to other churches in Asia Minor. Key verse in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So now let's look at the, the text of Ephesians. After a greeting, Paul launches into a doxology of praise. Praise to God for spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly realms. That is to say, the union of believers with Christ entails a share in his heavenly exaltation, as well as in his earthly death, burial, and resurrection. The doxology delineates the parts played in salvation by all three members of the Trinity. The Father chose believers, the dox- that's the Doctrine of election. Lecture. The Son redeemed them. The Holy Spirit sealed them. That is, the gift of the Spirit is God's down payment or guarantee that he will complete their salvation at the return of Christ. Following the doxology is a thanksgiving and prayer that believers may comprehend and appreciate the immensity of God's grace And wisdom. To help his audience appreciate this immensity of God's grace, Paul contrasts their domination by sin before conversion and their freedom from that tyranny after conversion. He also emphasizes that salvation is wholly unearned, it comes by God's grace through faith. And apart from meritorious good works, God's action does produce good works, but they are a consequence rather than a means of salvation. His grace reveals itself especially in the redemption of Gentiles from paganism and in their unity with Jews in the church. As we saw in Romans, they are grafted in. The dividing wall of hostility between the two groups, symbolized by the wall in the temple courtyards beyond which Gentiles were not allowed to go, does not exist in the church. Archeologists have found uh, the remains of that barrier. They've seen a sign which warns Gentiles don't go beyond this point, uh, upon pain of death. So, the Temple Mount and the Temple Complex, there was a division between Jew and Gentile, but that does not exist in the church. It's been taken away. Alternatively, the dividing wall represents the old barrier between God and human beings, now broken down by Christ. But however grand the plan of salvation, Paul and his audience faced the unpleasant reality of present persecution. He writes that his awareness of divine grace and of his privilege in spreading the good news prevents discouragement. Similar awareness on the part of his audience will also prevent their discouragement. The section therefore closes with another doxology and prayer that the audience may be stabilized by increased spiritual knowledge. The practical exhortations begin with a plea for outward unity growing out of the already existing spiritual unity of the church. Yet this unity includes a diversity of function for the growth of the body or church. Each believer has a ministerial function. Leaders in the church are to equip other believers for the carrying out of their various functions. Holy conduct. Miscellaneous instructions on holiness follow. Tell the truth. Be righteously indignant when necessary, but do not sin by failing to control your anger. There are things that Christians can and should be disturbed about, but we always want to avoid falling into sin. Do not steal. Avoid obscene speech and risqué humor. The section closes with a metrical triplet that may have come from an early baptismal hymn sung at the moment of rising from the water. Awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and the Christ will shine on you. So that may, may have come from an ancient baptismal hymn. Filling with the Spirit. Paul's exhortation to be filled with the Holy Spirit indicates that such a filling will show itself in avoiding drunkenness. We contrast that with the the drunken origins of Hellenistic cults and enjoyable singing, witnessing, and submission to one another. In particular, wives, should submit themselves to their husbands as the church is submissive to Christ its head. Husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church, his body. Children should obey their parents. Fathers should be reasonable with their children. Slaves should obey their masters. And masters should be kind to their slaves. Very practical instructions, then and now. Paul unites the metaphors of head and body with a picture of the church as the bride and wife of Christ, who is the groom and husband. Just as husband and wife become physically one in the relationship of marriage, so Christ and the church are one in the spirit. In the final section of Ephesians, we see the armor of God. For saying farewell, Paul urges his audience to don the spiritual armor provided by God and to fight the satanic powers that dominate the world. Perhaps the sight of the soldier to whom Paul is chained while dictating Ephesians in his house prison suggests the whole armor of God. The word for shield denotes the large kind of shield that, that covers the, the whole body not that small circular shield used by the Greeks. Flaming arrows refers to darts and arrows dipped in pitch or some other combustible material set of flame or hurled or shot toward the enemy. Look at one of the questions that comes up from the local Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.9, did Jesus descend into hell? Paul says here that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. And the Apostles' Creed declares that after Jesus died, he descended into hell. What does that mean? Some believe that during the three days between crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus spoke to the spirits in prison who were in a temporary holding place, until he came and led captivity captive, that is, took them to heaven. The uh, name of the claimant, all the word of faith people have some even, even more bizarre ideas. They think that during the, these three days, Jesus went down and wrestled the keys away from Satan. So there are news about Jesus going to hell during those three days. In response to this understanding, descending into the lower parts of the earth is not a reference to hell, but to the grave. Even a woman's womb is described as lowest parts of the earth. In Psalm 139, the phrase simply means caves or graves or enclosures on the earth, as opposed to higher parts like mountains. So the lower parts of the earth is not not a reference to hell. The phrase "descended into hell" was not in the earliest apostles' creed. It was not added until the fourth century. And even if that, as a creed, it is not inspired. It is only a human confession of faith. The term "spirits in prison" that we find in First Peter refers to fallen angels, not to human beings. And when Christ led captivity captive here in the the book of Ephesians, he was not leading friends into heaven, but bringing foes into bondage. It is a reference to his conquering forces of evil. Christians are not captives in heaven. So that is our answer to the idea that Jesus descended into hell. I'm going to look at the contributions of Ephesians, and there are many. The letter begins with the section putting strong emphasis on the divine action in bringing salvation. Paul refers to the spiritual blessings in Christ that believers enjoy, and goes on to speak of God as having chosen these believers before the creation of the world. Their salvation did not take place because they earned it, but because God planned it. a Truth that is otherwise expressed in terms of predestination that is linked with God's will and pleasure. And again, with his plan. This opening also includes references to sonship through Christ, redemption through his blood and sealing with the Holy Spirit. This massive emphasis on the place of the divine is expanded continuing reference with continuing references to grace. Christ's saving work is stressed in the opening, a work that has significant implications for Christology. This emphasis persists throughout the letter. It is plain everywhere that Christ, that who Christ is and what he does is at the heart of the Christian land. It is he who brings about the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in the church in the notable section on the breaking down of hostility and the making of peace between them. Christ himself is our peace. This is more than the overcoming of human hostility. Part of Christ's work is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The powers in the heavenly realms are to know the manifold wisdom of God through the church. There is an importance in Christ's saving work that we cannot fathom. And there is an importance in the very existence of the church that we are not able to fully to comprehend. Ephesians emphasizes the importance of the Christian's growth in knowledge. This is expressed in a variety of ways. Sometimes it comes out in simple statements about knowledge. That's when Paul says that God Made known to us the mystery, the mystery of the gospel. Mystery, mysterion, does not mean something difficult to work out, as we use the term in our language, but something impossible to work out until God discloses it. So we usually think of, of mystery as something that uh, can't be known or is difficult to know, but in the New Testament, this word mystery, mysterion, is talking about something that previously was unknown in the Old Testament, but now God has revealed it. God has made it. So whenever you hear some uh, modern-day Bible teacher who says that he's discovered some secret, some mystery that hasn't been known for centuries, um, you should be very skeptical about that. What we could never work out for ourselves, God has now made known. The making known of God's manifold wisdom. It is significant that the word mysterion occurs more often in Ephesians than in any other book of the New Testament. This book emphasizes the divine disclosure. The same basic idea may be conveyed with the concept of enlightenment. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know which is to be seen against the background of the darkness of the Gentiles. The readers are light in the Lord and they are to live as children of light and find out what pleases the Lord. They are to understand what the Lord's will is. No one who has grappled with the thought of this letter can doubt the importance of growing in knowledge. One of the important things that the readers must know is expressed in the prayer that they may be rooted and established in love and be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. The word agape, love, occurs more often in this book than in any other in the New Testament, except, of course, uh, 1 Corinthians and 1 John, but it's right up there. The reader sees the wonderful thing that Christian love is and the importance of living in love in a world that knows so little of it. The church is a holy temple in the Lord, a building in which Christ is the chief cornerstone and in which God lives by his spirit. From another point of view, church members are both fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, a household that derives its name from the Father and has members in heaven as well as on earth. I mentioned that in regard to the universal church. It and, and includes both those Christians that are living now and the ones who have gone on before. The bringing of Gentiles as well as Jews into membership of the one body is explained as a mystery, a deep and hidden truth that none of us could have worked out but that has now been revealed by God. There is a unity that believers should strive to preserve. Indeed, Paul draws attention to a whole series of unities, including one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father, one body and one hope, one faith, one baptism. Even though there are diverse gifts of apostles, prophets, and others in the church. Clearly, Paul wants his readers to catch the splendid vision of one church thoroughly united in the Lord, but so contains members of various races and is equipped by God to render significant service in this world. A considerable section of the letter is given over to an emphasis on the importance of lives lived in conformity with the, the salvation that God has given to believers. The kind of life the Gentiles live is contrasted with the new believer's life. The darkness of the old way is set over against the light there is in the Lord. This has important attainments for specific groups. Wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. While wives are to be subject subject to their husbands, Paul has much more to say about the obligations marriage weighs on husbands. They are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church, which at the least must mean self-sacrificially for their good. Such a love prevails over other ties, such as those that previously bound a man to his parents. This kind of love leads Paul to speak of a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. The section on the Christian's armor is a further, a further incentive to do wholehearted Christian service as well, as a reminder that there is full religion made for those who engage in Christian service. In this letter, we cannot miss the supreme place of God who brings salvation despite the unworthiness of sinners. Or can we overlook the greatness of Christ or the fact that the church, his body occupies an important place in God's working out of his great purpose. That concludes our study for this evening on the book of Ephesians. And we'll conclude with a word of prayer and then open it up for discussion. Father, we thank you for this particular epistle, epistle to the Ephesians, an epistle which doesn't concentrate on a particular problem that was experienced by a particular local church, but lays out for us a very important theology, showing us how great our riches are that we have in Christ Jesus. Sometimes in this world, It seems like we are so impoverished and so held down and so oppressed, but we do have great riches in Christ. We can rejoice in that. We can be thankful for that. We can also be thankful that you have given us practical instructions that we find in the book of Ephesians on how to conduct ourselves as Christians. We thank you for this. We ask that you would help us to be ever mindful of the riches that we have and help us to apply these instructions in our lives, in our daily lives. Thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.